0: Well, good morning again. It's so good to be with you this morning. If I haven't had the privilege and the honor of meeting you, uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Asbury. Uh, What a privilege it is to have you with us today in worship. All of you who are here, uh, those of you in person, we have a number of folks with us online. Actually, at our last service, we had somebody join us internationally. And so it's always amazing when we find out that our online presence uh, just expands throughout the world. And uh, thank you to those of you who have uh, invested in our technology to make that happen by God's grace. Uh, If you are with us for the first time today, I know that Pastor Will mentioned this, but uh, I'm a preacher, I repeat things, so let me mention this once more. If you are a visitor, grab a Connect card and uh, fill it out, uh, because we would like to connect with you. We would love to call you, email you, give you more information about this wonderful church family. And if you're with us online for the first time, um, you can leave your email address in the comment section on Facebook, And I promise that we will send you a note at some point this week. Let's pray together. Oh God, thank you again uh, for the amazing music uh, that we have um, heard today. Uh, Just having the opportunity to sing out your praises, uh, to celebrate all that you have done in our lives. And God, I know that we're hurting too. Um, We are hurting as individuals. We're hurting as a country, as people all over the world. And yet God, the reality is uh, that you are still good and that you are still for us and not against us. So please help us to open up our eyes to that truth. I pray that you would help me as a preacher this morning to get out of the way uh, so that your way might be known, your truth proclaimed, and your love made real. We pray all these things in the holy, the precious, the strong and mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said amen. 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 Well, listen, I know the people of Asbury have never heard me talk about Noah before. Amen, right? Obviously, I'm being a bit facetious this morning. I talk about Hannah and Noah a whole bunch, and if you don't know who Hannah and Noah are, uh, they're the twins uh, with whom God has graciously blessed a man and me. And right now, Hannah and Noah are three and a half years old, so continue to pray for us, please. Uh, They're three and a half, which means that they're toddlers, and so um, they're in the process right now of learning how to navigate the world, um, how the world around them functions and operates. And every once in a while, Hannah and Noah will encounter something unexpected, something that they weren't anticipating, something that they didn't foresee happening. And when that occurs, there's this phrase that they go to. This is what they'll say, "Uh uh-oh, what happened? What happened? And so just to give you an idea of how this works, um, sometimes they'll be watching television, uh, a cartoon like Peppa Pig, Paw Patrol. Uh, I've become very familiar with Peppa Pig and Paw Patrol during these days. So they'll be watching a cartoon like that and all of a sudden a commercial will come on, as commercials always do, and then they'll say, "Uh uh-oh, what happened? In other words, what happened to the TV show I was watching? Why is this commercial on? I know that many of us ask that when the commercials come on, that's what they're asking right now. Or other times we'll be cleaning up some mess in the kitchen, maybe milk spilled, juice spilled, a dish broke, and they'll come in the kitchen, they'll look around and they'll say, "Uh uh-oh, what happened? Why is the mess here? Uh, Or one more example. Uh, This happened last summer before we came to Asbury. Uh, We were living in Davenport, um, southwest Orlando. And the family room that we had needed a new couch. And so we decided to get rid of the old couch and replace it with a brand new couch from Ikea. I'm not sure if that was a good idea because Ikea furniture is very hard to build, just FYI. But that's what we decided to do. And so uh, we had just gotten rid of the old couch. We were waiting for the new couch to come. And this is what our family room looked like for a few days. And so Hannah and I woke up in the morning and they were rubbing their eyes and they saw that the couch was missing. And of course, this is what they said. "Uh Uh-oh, what happened? What happened? Well, I'll share all this with you for two reasons. Number one, because I like talking about our kids. It just brings me a lot of joy and happiness. Uh, But number two, that's the million-dollar question that we're going to be focusing on in this message. What happened? What happened? And so last week, we kicked off this brand new sermon series that we're calling The Short of It, the entire story of the Bible from creation to new creation. The Short of It, the entire story of the Bible from creation to new creation. And in a nutshell, this series is designed to give us a big picture view of the Bible, uh, to see Scripture from a 30,000 foot view. Many of us might be familiar with individual parts of Scripture. Um, for instance we may be familiar with individual verses like Jeremiah 2911, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, uh, not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you a future with hope. Uh, we may be familiar with other passages like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Or Philippians 4.13, I could do all things through Christ, who gives me strength. We may be familiar with some of the characters, like Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, David, Mary, Peter, Paul. We may be familiar with some of the stories like the conquest of Canaan, Jesus walking on water, Jesus healing the blind man. But we don't necessarily have an overall framework, an overall overarching framework in which to put all those individual pieces. And so that's what we're hoping to glean and draw from this message series. And the resource that we're using as our guide is a book by Joshua McNall, called Long Story Short, The Bible in Six Simple Movements. If you're interested, um, you can purchase this book online. Long Story Short, The Bible in Six Simple Movements. And so, uh, McNall is a professor. He teaches at a school in Oklahoma, and he's a professional theologian. And what he does in this book is he identifies six major movements of Scripture, six major movements. And by understanding and wrapping our brains around these six movements, he says, uh, this is his contention, We can have that big picture view of the Bible that we want. And so the six major movements that McDonald identifies in his book are these Creation, Fall, Israel, Jesus, the Church, New Creation. Creation, the Fall, Israel, Jesus, the Church, and the number six, New Creation. And so last week we began this new message series and we looked at the first major movement of of the Bible. And of course, that would be the movement of creation. Uh, we find the story of creation in those opening chapters genesis 1 and 2 and in that message we discovered that god made this world not because god was lonely not because god was bored not because god had nothing better to do but rather god made this world simply out of love that the love of god the love within god's own being the love within the father and the son and the holy spirit that love could not be contained It could not be held in, it literally spilled out, it overflowed into God's act of creation. That there was order to creation, there was purpose to creation, there was intent to creation. And then as the pinnacle of creation, the icing on the cake, the climax of all that God had made, God made us as human beings and God set us apart from the rest of creation. How did God set us apart from the rest of creation? By designing us in his own image, in his very own image. That's what separates human beings from the animals, from the plants, the fact that you and I alone have been made in the image of God. Theologians refer to this concept as the imago Dei, the image of God. But what does it mean for us to be made in the image of God? Uh, Bible scholars and theologians have wrestled with that question for a long time. But a huge part of what it means is that we have been made from and for community. From and for community. Number one, we've been made from community. Think about this with me. We've been made from the very God who himself is community. God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God will always be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is who God is in and of himself. Uh, There is community. There are relationships within the Godhead. And because we've been made in the image of this God who is community, we have been made for community. We have been made for community with God and community with each other that God wants us to have a relationship with himself, but God also wants us to have a relationship with other people. Uh, This is part of what it means for us to be a human being made in the image of God. And then the final point that we brought out last time is that this community God made us for, with himself and with other people, this community is to be marked by transparency, vulnerability, openness. Uh, Listen again to how the creation story ends. Uh, This is uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. This is the verse that we stopped with last time. This is the very last verse of the creation story. Now, the man and his wife, that would be Adam and Eve, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. They were naked, but they felt no shame. What did it mean, mean for them to be naked? Well, as we said last time, it meant that they were transparent, They were vulnerable. They were open. They didn't have any secrets. They didn't have any barriers. They didn't have any obstacles between themselves and God and themselves and each other. Uh, They were fully who they were, nothing more, nothing less, um, open to God, open to each other. This is what God intended for all of us as human beings. And yet, folks, that's not what we experience anymore, is it? Which begs the question, why? What happened? Or as our twins would say, "Uh uh-oh, what happened? What happened? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so last time we focused on Genesis 1 and 2, today we turn our attention to the very next chapter, Genesis 3. Uh, We're going to work through this story bit by bit, and we're going to start with the very first verse. Uh, This is Genesis 3, verse 1. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, uh, which if you're interested, this is my preferred translation of Scripture. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Before we go any further, I'm going to pause here. And I want to name an elephant that I think might be in this room right now. This is the part of the story that some of us struggle with, right? Because it's unlike anything that we experience in our world. For us, talking serpents aren't exactly a part of our reality. Anybody else talk to a serpent this morning? Uh, For us, talking serpents normally only show up in Disney movies and cartoons. And so oftentimes, we open up the Bible, we come to Genesis 3, we're only three chapters in, and we come across this text and we're like, how do I read this? How do I interpret this? How do I understand this? Uh, One of my favorite theologians uh, is this guy named Karl Barth. He was probably one of the most famous theologians of the 20th century. Well, one time, Bart was giving a lecture on Genesis chapter 3, uh, the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent. And after the lecture was over, there was a Q&A session, questions and answers. And this person came up to him, and the person asked, is it true, Dr. Bart? Did the serpent really speak? I mean, come on. Was there really a talking serpent in a garden? And Bart looked at this person, and he said, my friend, you're missing the point entirely. The question is not, did the serpent speak? the question is, what did the serpent say? And I think what Karl Bart meant was, oftentimes as the reader, we get caught up in the wrong questions, in these secondary questions, and we lose sight of the passage itself. Listen, folks, this story is so much more than a story about a talking serpent. If we think that this story is mainly about a talking serpent, this unusual event, we're going to miss the deeper meaning here. The truth that's being told here goes far deeper than just pure, literal fact. The truth that's being told here, being communicated here, expressed here, is fundamental truth about how sin came into this world. What I mean by that is sin then come into this world because God brought it in. God is not responsible for sin. God is not the author of sin. Rather, sin came into this world because at some point, we as human beings, all of us did this, we made a conscious decision a collective choice to rebel against God's perfect love and do our own thing. And where did this rebelling happen? Where did this rebelling take place? Well, it says here in Genesis 3, it happened at a tree. And so let's read on. Uh, This is uh, Genesis 3, verses 2 and 3. Of course we may eat the fruit, or we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, the woman replied. This is Eve talking to the serpent. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden That we are not allowed to eat, God said you must not eat it or even touch it. By the way, God never said that. God never said don't touch it. That's a topic for another sermon. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. So here's the woman who would later be called Eve. She's actually not Eve at this point in the story. That happens later on when she's named and presumably she's with Adam. Some people think, oh, Adam, he wasn't with her, but I think that he, that he was with her because it says later on that the two of them were there together as they eat the fruit. And where are Adam and Eve standing? They're standing beneath a tree. Now listen, in the ancient Near East, trees were so much more than places of shade and comfort. Nowadays, we see a tree and we're like, okay, I'm going to go there. I'm going to take a chair and relax and the sun's not going to beat down on me. It's going to be really comfortable. But in the ancient Near East, trees were so much more than places of shade and comfort. Trees were locations of judgment. Judgment would be rendered from underneath the branches of a tree. Uh, There's an example of this in the Old Testament book of Judges. Um, And so in Judges chapter 4, we encounter this woman named Deborah. Deborah is one of Israel's premier judges and military leaders. And it says that when the people of God would go to Deborah for judgment, that she would deal out this judgment from underneath a tree. Uh, This is Judges 4, verses 4 and 5. It says Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. Uh, The time that's being referred to would be the period of the judges um, after the conquest of Canaan and before the period of the kings. Um, She was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah, this tree that was named after her, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. Folks, trees were more or less the courtroom of the ancient Near East. And so here Adam and Eve are. They're standing beneath a tree. What the writer seems to be saying, without explicitly saying it, is Adam and Eve are in a position of judgment where they can do the right thing. They can make the right choice if they want to. They can drown out the lies of the enemy, of the serpent. They can say to the serpent, we're not going to listen to you because we know that you don't have our best interests at heart. Instead, we're going to listen to God. We know that God loves us. We know that God cares for us. We know that God has given us everything we could ever want or need. God has given us paradise to enjoy. We're going to remain obedient to God. But that's not what they do, is it? Instead, they choose to rebel. They choose to eat from the tree. Now, here's another question that people ask. Why did God put that tree there? Have you ever wondered that before? Let's be honest this morning. A lot of people raise this question. Why did God put that tree there? I mean, come on, if you tell somebody not to do something, you parents know this, if you tell somebody not to do something, there's a very strong possibility that they're going to do it anyway. As I was uh, doing some work in this message, um, a lot of times what I like to do is I like to engage questions that um, skeptics ask about the Bible and Christianity. So I came across this blog that was put together by this religious skeptic, somebody who is skeptical toward God and the claims of the Christian faith. And this person in her blog, she was writing about this passage from Genesis 3. And she was really struggling uh, with the fact that God put the tree there in the garden. And so this is what she writes in her blog. I pulled this directly from the internet. She writes, why did God cause an apparently poisoned tree to grow in the garden that he planted? He's all-powerful, so couldn't he just cut it down or simply obliviate it? I mean, as a parent, I put plugs in the electrical outlets so that sadly my daughter doesn't stick things in them. And doing this kind of thing really isn't that hard. I appreciate her honesty. Because she verbalizes, she articulates the struggles that many people have with this text. I mean, come on. Why put that tree there? It seems as if God was just setting Adam and Eve up for failure. Certainly God had the foreknowledge. He knew what they were going to do. So why put it there? You know why I think God put that tree there? You know what I think that tree was doing in the garden? God put that tree there because God wanted Adam and Eve to have a choice in the matter. The tree represents freedom. The tree represents freedom. You see, folks, God loved Adam and Eve. God loved them. And out of that love, God made Adam and Eve, and subsequently, God made all of us, because the story of Adam and Eve is so much more than a story about two people. It's a story about the whole human race. I'm Adam and Eve. You're Adam and Eve. God made all of us for a relationship with himself and a relationship with each other. But here's the deal. God's not going to force these relationships upon us. He's not going to tie our hands and coerce us into these relationships because God who is love, God who embodies love, as it says in 1 John 4, God understands this profound truth about love, that love demands freedom. You can't have love if you don't also have freedom. The two automatically go together. Who here remembers the doll, Chetty Kathy. Cathy. Anybody remember Chatty Cathy? Okay, now you're engaged, right? For the record, I don't personally remember Chatty Cathy. She was a bit before my time. But I do remember talking to my mom when I was a child, and she would tell me how she wanted a Chatty Cathy doll for Christmas. I can't remember if she ever got a Chatty Cathy doll. I hope that she did. Uh, But I do remember her talking about Chatty Cathy. And so for those of us not familiar, Chatty Cathy was a doll that was produced by Mattel from 1959 to 1965. And what's really neat about Chatty Cathy is that she was the first pull string doll, I verified this this week, she was the first pull string doll, so you would pull the string in her back and she would utter one of, not nine phrases, not ten phrases, she would utter one of eleven phrases, like, I want a cookie, or let's play school, or I hurt myself, but probably the best known phrase that Chatty Cathy would say was this, I love you, I love you. Just pull the string in her back, and Chatty Cathy would make you feel good. She would say, I love you. Here's a question. Why didn't God make human beings like Chatty Cathy? God could have done this if God wanted to. Just put a string in her back, you pull the string, and we would say, I love you, God. Of course I'm going to obey you. Of course I'm going to listen to you. Of course I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do. Because that would not be love. That would be the movie The Stepford Wives, but that would not be love. It would not be love. Listen, God wants human beings to love and obey Him not because we are coerced, not because we are manipulated, not because we are programmed into doing so, but simply because we want to. God, who is love, understands this profound truth about love that love demands freedom. You remember in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul goes on to mention all these different characteristics about love. What does he say in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. What else does he say? Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. Uh, Well, this is what Paul goes on to say about love and that same passage. This is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. If we can, let's read this together. Love does not demand its own way. Love does not demand its own way. God does not demand God's own way. God gives us freedom. And the story of Adam and Eve demonstrates what we as human beings chose to do with that freedom. Not pursue God, not be with God, not listen to God, but instead to rebel against God's perfect love and do our own thing. Uh, Let's read on. This is uh, Genesis 3, verses 4 through 6. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Why is the world the way it is? Why do we live on a planet that God made good that has now been impacted by sin? Because at some point theologically, all of us as human beings, we made the collective choice to rebel against God's perfect love and to eat the fruit in the garden. And here's the other truth, that as human beings, we continue to eat the fruit each and every day. We eat the fruit whenever we gossip, whenever we slander another person made and created in the image of God because we somehow think that this gossip, this slander, it's gonna make us feel better about ourselves. It's gonna make us feel more secure about ourselves, more confident in ourselves. We eat the fruit whenever we lie, whenever we're deceptive, whenever we toss somebody else under the bus because we're trying to protect our own skin. We eat the fruit whenever we look beyond the blessings that we have in life, all that God has given to us and we envy the people around us who have things that we don't. We eat the fruit as individuals, but we also eat the fruit as a society whenever we perpetuate systemic evil, institutional evil. Folks, the reality about the fall is not just that it happened, but that it happens. It continues to happen each and every day. If you're not sure about this, just watch the news. Read the newspaper. Look at your own life. As human beings, we are fallen. And our fallenness has disrupted the very community for which God made us, community with God and community with each other. What does it mean to be a human being made in the image of God, to have a relationship with God, and to have a relationship with other people? Sin has disrupted all this. Number one, sin has disrupted our community with God. And actually, this story in Genesis 3, it shows that. Because what happens next, after Adam and Eve eat the fruit... It says their eyes are opened and they know they've done wrong and evil and they see that they're naked and they're ashamed and they're embarrassed. So what do they do? They go hide behind some bushes or trees. And then what happens next? God comes walking in the garden. Remember what God calls out to the man? This is Genesis 3, verse 9. And by the way, when you read this question, read it with inflection. Listen to the pain and the hurt in God's voice. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? As a parent... You ever ask that question to your child who maybe was estranged? Or maybe they were out somewhere and you didn't know where they were and you were worried? Where are you? Where are you? Now, on the surface, this seems like a strange question for God to ask. I mean, certainly the maker of the universe who knows everything, certainly he knows where two naked people are hiding, right? But when we read that question super literally, we miss what God is actually asking. God's not asking, where are you physically? God knows where Adam and Eve are physically. They're behind some bushes. God's asking, where are you spiritually? Where are you in a relationship to me? Because to walk, remember Adam and Eve were in the garden. God had come to, to walk in the garden. To walk is to be in relationship. Who do we walk with? We walk with the people that we want to be close to. In this very poetic way, the writer is saying to us that Adam and Eve are no longer in relationship with God in the way that they had been. But not only are they no longer in relationship with God in the way that they had been, they're also no longer in relationship with each other. Because then what happens next is God begins to hold Adam and Eve responsible for their sin. And what what do they do? Well, Adam puts the blame on his wife. This is what it says in Genesis 3, verse 12. The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. He doesn't take responsibility. It's not my fault. I was passive in all this, right? No, it's ridiculous. Uh, I was passive in all this. But this is what sin does to all of us. Sin pulls us out of community with God, but it also pulls us out of community with each other. The very relationships for which we were designed. Well, finally, what happens in Genesis 3 is as a consequence of their actions, God banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. Now, so often we read the story of the banishment, and we think that that was a curse or a punishment, but I would submit to you that the banishment in some ways, in many ways, was actually a blessing and a gift. Because if Adam and Eve had stayed in the Garden of Eden, as God goes on to say, they would have eaten from the tree of life and they would have lived forever. But forever in what? Sin? Brokenness? Fractured relationships? No, God had something far better in mind. God has something far better in mind for all of us as human beings. And so, folks, what we see in the ensuing chapters of Scripture is that even as the effects of sin grow, Cain murders his brother Abel in Genesis 4, human beings get further and further away from God. Even as the effects of sin grow, God begins this process of restoring us, reshaping us, reclaiming us, refusing to give up until his treasure possession is home. One day in 1941, Samuel Booth and his fiancée, Violet Bailey, they were taking a stroll, a walk, through the English countryside. They were holding hands. The two of them were madly in love, and they were recently engaged. In fact, they had gotten engaged earlier that day. And to signify the engagement, there was this beautiful diamond ring that sparkled on Violet's finger. You could see that ring from far away. It was her most treasured possession. Well, then as they were walking hand in hand, an argument broke out. The romance was interrupted. Somebody said something that hurt the other person's feelings, and Violet got pretty upset. And of course, Samuel was upset too, but Violet got upset, and she was so upset that she pulled the ring from her finger, she raised it up in the air, and then she tossed it as hard as she possibly could. The ring went sailing through the air, and then finally it nestled in the grass in such a way that it was impossible to find. Well, Violet and Samuel kissed, and they made up. They went searching for the ring. They searched for hours and hours and hours. It got dark outside. They came back the next day. They could not find that ring, and they finally just gave up. Two months later, they got married, and they had a son. And then many years after that, they had a grandson. And the story about this lost ring became part of their family